bring out your Bibles, uh, paper copy, electronic copy, whatever you, ha- you have. I always encourage you to have a copy of the Scriptures with you as we study it together uh, so that you can track along and open it up to the book of 1 Timothy. You'll find that in the New Testament, uh, midway through that uh, New Testament of, of the Scriptures, uh, a letter that is written by a man named Paul, who was an apostle of Jesus Christ, one of the leaders of the early church. Um, and uh, written to a man named Timothy, who was at this point serving in the city of Ephesus, overseeing the ministry there and being used of God to be sure to uh, kind of bring forward some things that, that Paul is in, encouraging him with here and teaching him to pass along to the church. And so we find this letter from Paul to Timothy, uh, very helpful teaching for us for how we are to live as individual followers of Christ, as well as how we follow Christ together collectively as what we refer to as the local church. And uh, this particular local church has a name, Crossroads, right? So as we gather, as we fellowship together as followers of Jesus, uh, Timothy, uh, this letter, acts as kind of an instruction manual for us, as we have said, as the local church. Um, and so we will continue to delve into it. We're walking through it from beginning to end. Now, I want to be clear that today's uh, passage, today's text, uh, is a difficult one on two levels. Uh, it's difficult, first of all, in the level of interpretation. And we say interpretation meaning asking the question, what exactly is being said here? Uh, The passage has stirred great debate and continues to stir great debate within the church. Uh, Personally, I have dear brothers and sisters in Christ, friends who uh, interpret uh, this text a bit differently than I do. That does not break our bond of friendship or unity in Christ. Instead, it it drives me deeper in prayer and diligent study. Uh, The point for anyone, any one of us, is to always use sound hermeneutical or, or Bible study principles to, as best we can in our finite and darkened understanding of the things of God in this world, as best we can to draw out of the text what God has said. And as always, we seek to understand this text in the context of the entire breadth of Scripture. Um, and as we seek to understand the interpretation of it, what is God saying to us, then we humbly apply it to life? How does it affect us? Uh, kind of the so what question, right? And so the application is kind of the second challenge of this text as we understand it, as we best try to interpret what God has said to us and given to us here. How does it meet everyday life? How does it affect everyday life for you personally as well as for us in the life of this local church? So we must seek the wisdom and guidance of the Holy Spirit in those two things. Amen. Uh, the interpretation and the application of the Word of God. And so I felt the need perhaps to lay some ground rules, reminders, if you will, as we head into this study today. First of all, uh, reminding us God is good in all His ways. Amen? You believe that? God is good in all His ways. He is a God of love. God is love, the Scripture teaches us. Uh, He is a God of peace, not of confusion. And therefore, we can trust his word. And whenever there is an issue understanding God's truth, friend, I believe the root of the matter lies with us, not with him. Uh, And so that's why we have to do the hard work of study and uh, reflection upon the word so that we seek to understand it well. 
Second of all, a second ground rule, if you will, is that the teaching of Scripture, the will and the way of God, will challenge sinful hearts, right? Um, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts, not our thoughts. God's evaluation of the human heart, I was reminded in reflecting on these things this week, God's, God's evaluation of the human heart as we find it in Genesis chapter 9 is that it's only evil all the time. How's that for an uplifting you know, kind of thought for the day? Um, yeah, so we have, to, we have to note that the gospel is offensive. The word tells us it's foolishness, actually, to those who don't believe and convicting to us who do believe. And as followers of Jesus, we should expect to be made uncomfortable and be convicted at times as we study the word of God. It's part of the transformation. Right? In salvation, we are transformed in Christ. We are given a new life. We are born again in Jesus. But then there's also this process of being transformed in life as we seek to, as was mentioned earlier, to put off the old self and put on what is the new self, what is true of us in Christ. And um, Paul tells Timothy in his second letter to him that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All of those words reveal to us like, you know what, uh, we don't have this figured out. And we need God's word to guide us in understanding what is of the things of God and the kingdom of God. And Paul tells Timothy the reason why this is important is so that the, the man of God, or here we could translate that particular portion, the people of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's the pursuit for God to, through his word, bring us to that point of transformation and equipping us for what is of his good work. So, uh, God is faithful and his, his word is true and it will challenge our hearts. Third ground rule for today is that our approach to the word of God is always to, ought always to be to align ourselves with it, not make it align with us. Does that make sense? As you read the word of God, our pursuit, our mindset ought to be, God help me to, to, to conform my mind and heart to what is the teaching of your word not somehow take what I desire or my experience and, and bring that into the Word and make it say what I want it to say. Uh, in the song that our friends sang today, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done, right? As an aspect of the Lord's prayer. That's, that's the heart desire. Your, your will be done um, right here in my heart. And the challenge of that as we read the Scriptures, at least to some measure, is that we all carry a degree of bias as we interpret the word, right? Whether it's personal experience or past teaching or whatever it might be, we, it's just this constant uh, process of trying to, to distinguish our hearts and, and our stuff from what God has truly said. So uh, our approach to the word of God is to align ourselves with it. And lastly, as a ground rule, we find in, in all throughout Scripture, but in places like 1 Corinthians 12 in particular, that we are to endeavor to serve Christ with humility and with mutual respect for every person, right? Each and every one of us created in the image of God. And so we, we live as followers of Christ uh, to pursue humility and mutual respect for every person acknowledging that truth. And that, noting that God in this local body, right, 
has equipped us. He's, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the fact there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There's varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. So why is there a diversity among us? Why do you hear us you know, speaking of, of various things as access ministry, the friends of Jesus that you just saw uh, and participated with us in this uh, fellowship uh, today as they do every Sunday is uh, the fact that there was, there was a burden of, of one of our ladies years ago who saw, man, there's a need for us as a church body to minister to those with disabilities, and, and that ministry was birthed out of that desire, and God bringing others along like Misty and others who, who share that desire. So there's, there's a variety of activities, a variety of gifts, there's a variety. So as we collectively think of ourselves as the body of Christ, um, we realize, boy, God, God is in control of that. And God, as 1 Corinthians 12, 18 says, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. Friends, you may think that you are here today simply by your choosing, but there's certainly an aspect we understand the word of God is that God has drawn you here to be part of this local body for a specific purpose and a reason to build up the body of Christ. Right? So, so we function together in humility and mutual respect, understanding God's work among us collectively. So, um, so with that, may that be our heart today as we approach the Word of God. And let's read together our text uh, for this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. It'll be on the screen for you in the English Standard Version, so if you don't have that translation uh, before you, you can read along with it from the screen. I want you to join me in reading it out loud, all right? Verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works." Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control." And now you know why we need the Spirit of God. So let's pray. <laughs> Father, we come to you humbly, and uh, Lord, uh, we love your word, and uh, we love the fact that you have given to us in written form uh, through um, 40-some authors, Lord, over a period of 1,400 years. Lord, you've given to us a, a narrative, a story that reveals who you are, tells us about ourselves, tells us of the matter of sin that separates us from you, tells us of the, the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel by which we can be reconciled with you, our creator God, and live life in a, in a manner that glorifies you and that is full of hope and eternal um, glory, and we're just we're thankful. So Lord, as today, your people, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what you have for us. Give us hearts to receive uh, what you have for us, and that we would do well through your spirit to discern your truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
Well, Paul tells Timothy in verse 8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Paul says, I desire. Now, immediately we have a matter that we must resolve, a subject of debate over the years. Uh, This is not a text of scripture that is kind of the clear, declarative, kind of command-driven type of passage we see Paul use elsewhere. In fact, the New American Standard Bible, which is the most literal translation in English, says, I want. Paul says, I want. Here in the English Standard Version, I desire. It's further complicated, if you will, by verse 12, in which Paul says, I do not permit. Now, we realize that's, you know, what's the question here? Is Paul just sharing his personal opinion and personal desire, or is he speaking the Lord's will? The only command or imperative that we have in this particular portion of the letter is found in verse 11, which says, let a woman learn quietly. That's an imperative. That's the only one we have in this particular text. So, so the question surrounding this oftentimes is Paul simply sharing his opinion, his personal opinion, his personal desire, or is he speaking the will of God? Some have concluded that what Paul shares here is his preference because of the cultural context of Ephesus, which we've talked about over the last few weeks, right? Remember that um, the city of 250,000 people or so, uh, a Roman a province, um, was the center of the temple of Diana. So we talked about the influence of that and all of the idol worship and, and she being a, a goddess of fertility and so on. And so kind of this, this uh, uh, radical feminism kind of being prevent, prevalent within the city. And so Paul is simply addressing, some would say, what is a, a very powerful piece of the culture in Ephesus. And so he's, he's drawing into that with this text by saying, I desire. I do recognize that it is a bit of a common trait for Paul um, to speak in these ways, like I desire or I urged. Uh, as I urged you in verse 3 of chapter 1, we, we saw that as well, Paul saying to Timothy, as I urged you uh, to stay, remain in Ephesus. Uh, another uh, passage of scripture where this is particularly evident is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. When Paul is talking about marriage and singleness, and he, he kind of takes some steps back and once in a while, it seems like, boy, is, is, is Paul talking about his preference in this, or is he relaying the will of God to us as revealed to him by Christ? Um, we do know that um, the other authors of the scriptures, as well as Paul, were, uh, as the word says, carried along by the Holy Spirit to give us God's word. These aren't just human authors writing their thoughts, it's God using human authors to convey his very message to us. That's part of the uniqueness of the word of God. And so I would conclude, Paul is is sharing here a desire, but Paul's desires are not contrary to the will of God. As he is carried along by the Spirit, his desires are in alignment with it. Um, And Paul makes no specific appeal to the culture of Ephesus for his reasoning, as we will see. But instead, he goes all the way back to the created order. So um, I think Paul is sharing more than just his desire. God is using him as a man, as a human author, to share his desired will for the local church. He says, I desire then, meaning his 
thoughts here flow from the context that uh, Colin walked us through, Pastor Colin walked us through a couple of weeks ago, uh, which is teaching that Jesus is one mediator, right? There's one mediator between God and man who gave himself as a ransom. And, and Paul's saying then, and I was appointed as, as, a, as an ambassador, right, or as a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of that gospel, of that good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul often refers to his calling as an apostle to convince his readers of his authority to teach. So I desire then. What does he get into? Well, first of all, he addresses men. He says that in every place, meaning the common public gatherings of the church, I desire in every place um, to, uh, for men to pray. Uh, for men to pray. Now, as we uh, in our Western culture... Uh, over the last few decades, uh, have grown more and more gender conscious. Uh, there is increased sensitivity to the historically generic kind of masculine form of speech uh, when referring to a crowd, right? Um, using uh, the, the masculine forms to, to express a, a context or to speak of a context referring to both men and women. We've grown more and more conscious of that, more and more sensitive to that, if you will. Many terms and descriptors have changed from referring to both uh, males and females combined. For example, um, you know, it's no longer airline stewardess, it's uh, uh, flight attendant. It's no longer firemen, uh, it's firefighters, or policemen, it's police officers, things of that nature that we just have seen in our culture, and, and that's not a wrong thing uh, in those contexts in which referring to men and women, not saying that at all, but just as we've seen this um, shift within our culture, and this cultural shift has posed a need for us to clarify biblical translation. When is the Bible referring to only men? When is it referring to only women? And when is it referring to those combined? The Greek word used here, and this is part of the reason why I draw that out, is because the Greek word used here when Paul is addressing men is the word aner, and uh, it is not the general term that references humanity. Uh, for example, the word anthropos in the Greek or Adam in the Greek, those can, those can be translated as humanity or, or uh, anthropos means brothers, but oftentimes we know from the context like he's referring to brothers and sisters, um, but here, aner is a specific word uh, always translated as man or as husband. And so Paul is certainly speaking specifically in this text to the men of the church, those who are to uh, pray with hands lifted high and without anger or quarreling. is a typical posture of prayer, hands lifted high in Jewish culture, um, and that is meant to reflect and to shape the heart and soul of a man. Lifting holy hands. Not just any hands, but holy hands. Hands that are committed and dedicated. The word holy means set apart. So as we lift our hands, it's a sign of saying, God, I, I set myself apart for you and for your purposes and your kingdom. It's a posture, it's a position of humility and praise and submission. You've all seen the police episodes or the westerns, you know, and they're arresting the bad guy, what do they say? Come out with your hands up, right? I mean, it's, it's a posture of surrender. It's a posture of, of humility. Um, 
of saying I am submitting myself to another. It's a physical posture that reveals a heart posture. And as followers of Christ, as leaders within the church, there is, we are called to be humble and to submit to Christ. So men, raise your hands in prayer as a sign of surrender to Christ, humbly. Uh, humble yourselves before him. And we understand that to be true, and it goes right along with what we know is the teaching of Scripture in regards to biblical leadership. It is servant leadership. What the Bible describes as leadership is servant leadership, not a dictatorship, not a heavy-handed, arrogant, prideful spirit. It is a humble spirit lived in submission to Christ. And so he calls them to do that, to pray, to submit themselves to Christ without anger and quarreling. Perhaps there was an issue with that within the church there in Ephesus where they would come and, you know, have this posture of prayer in their worship gatherings. But then outside of that, there was fighting and quarreling. And, and Paul's like, those, those two uh, don't jive together, right? They are, they are not compatible. So lift your hands in prayer, men. And do so without quarreling and fighting. Have unity in the body of Christ. In the book of James, we see the question posed specifically, what causes fights and quarrels among you? What is it that causes that within us? Not just men, but all of us. What is it that causes Well, James says, well, it's when you don't get what you want, right? It's when your desires are, are rejected or somehow not met. And so we fight and quarrel in order to get what we want. So Paul's saying, guys, this is not compatible. You can't come and, and seek to worship and pray to God with hands lifted high, but then go out and fight and quarrel. It doesn't make sense. Submit yourselves in reverence. So listen, I'm not, I'm not saying that everyone has to lift their hands in prayer, but men in particular, since that's Paul's address here, if you check the motive of your heart and you are hesitant or resistant to lift your hands in prayer, and oftentimes in our worship gathering, that, that, you know, it's more of in our singing that we think of that context of you know, songs are, are prayers, set the music. And so um, if you're hesitant to lift your hands in prayer because you wonder what people will think about you or because you are embarrassed to do so, then... May I just be so bold to you, brother, is to say that's pride. It's pride. And it's exactly the reason why you should raise your hands in prayer, quite honestly, to develop a spiritual discipline reminding you that you are a servant of Almighty God and you submit to Him and His will. Lift your hands in prayer. So Paul addresses man, and Colin wanted that a little further because it's kind of flowing out of emphasis on prayer. In earlier verses, and one of the qualities of a church, certainly that we all should look for, is prayer being central. And may we align ourselves with that as a local body. May prayer always be important. Now, speaking to women, Paul makes a turn there. He says, likewise, in verse 9, um, likewise also, so I desire also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or, and gold or perils or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, the word used here for women goes right along with the word aner, meaning specifically men. The word he uses here for women, gune, is a word translated women or woman or wife. 
So it's, again, very specific. He's drawing a clear line of distinction. He's not using the terms that, that we can use kind of universally here. Um, and he says to the women, he says that they should adorn themselves with respectable apparel, not gaudy, showy, self-promoting kind of apparel. Now, some believe that, and we understand the cultural context of Ephesus, as it does factor in here, is that, um, that the temple Diana, that there was prostitution and all of that, and, and perhaps he's saying to them, listen, you need to, to dress differently. Make sure you're not bringing that into the local church context, but to realize as followers of Christ, we are to present ourselves differently. So with respectable apparel, with modesty, the Greek word here, idos, is used only here in the Bible. So we don't have other passages we can turn to, to like compare it to, which is one of the foundations of, of interpreting the Bible is like when we see certain words used, we can kind of go, all right, how is it used elsewhere in the Bible that gives us insight? And here's the only instance. And so what we have to go to is kind of the broader Greek language, and it was used to denote reverence and respect toward God or rulers or parents and laws of hospitality and marriage and family. So it's used in a sense of reverence and respect elsewhere. So we can seem to apply here that that's what Paul's getting at in the sense of modesty um, and self-control, reverence toward others, not drawing attention to oneself by your actions with boisterous behavior, but, but to do so, handle yourselves in a way that is respectful around others. So um, so he speaks of these things positively, and then he gives some examples of what to avoid. He says, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Uh, these things that are at times excessive or can be and, and showy. So when you gather as the church, when you gather together, like, uh, again, it's just the, this, the encouragement of not doing things to draw attention to yourself. There's certainly a, you know, a distinction of, of a woman on her wedding day, right, of how she does her hair and all of that, probably not the typical way she does it every day in life, right? And that's why we bring hairdressers to, you know, to, to do the hair of everybody in the wedding party. I mean, there's occasions, absolutely, right? But he's just saying here, like, hey, when you come to the church, don't, don't try to, to, to do yourself up in a way that draws attention to yourself, I think is how we can understand that but with what is proper for women who profess godliness. Our lives reflect Christ, not ourselves. Uh, again, we are to be distinct from the world. So um, with what is proper for women who profess godliness. And uh, ladies, that's certainly a great conversation you can have among one another, right, as you seek to apply this principle. What exactly, uh, how does this look in, in everyday life? What, what are those things that are proper for women who profess godliness um, and so on? Um, so Paul brings encouragement to men and women here. I think verse 11, um, there's, there's a bit of a, a, a more of a break here because that's, again, this is the, the only imperative or command we have in the scripture in verse 11. It says, let a, a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Um, again, a heart of reverence to God. And I believe his created order, as we will see. Let's, let's think for a moment about this word, quietly. Um, what does Paul mean 
And here's part of the reason why I ask, because as we delve into the scripture, we realize that we use the English word quiet or quietly to translate a few different words in the Greek language. So again, we have to go back and go, okay, so what, what's the different kind of connotation with those original words, and, and, and why do we just use the word quietly, and what might we understand when we go a bit deeper? The first word we translate as quietly in English, we find in Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, uh, lathra, um, and it was used of speaking of Joseph, Joseph and Mary. Remember when Joseph found out that Mary was with child, what was his first inclination? Well, it says, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly, right? That word used as an adverb there, meaning to do so secretly or in a hidden way. Joseph did not desire to publicly shame Mary, so he decided to divorce her quietly, or he thought that's what he would do till the angel appeared to him as well. And then we have another word, catastello, in Acts chapter 19, verse 5. We spoke of this situation at the outset of our study of Timothy because this took place in the city of Ephesus when Paul was originally there and he was preaching the gospel and lives were being changed and the city was being radically transformed. It had an effect on the larger kind of uh, culture of Ephesus. And there was a man named Demetrius who was a silversmith who made idols and that was his source of income and living. He made idols of Diana and so on. And so when people began to turn to Christ and forsaking the, the worship of Diana, he became very fearful uh, of one, that they would forsake Diana, the goddess, but also like, man, I'm going to lose my income. And so he stirs up a crowd against Paul, seeking to dispel him. But in verse 35 we read, but when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, there was one who came in, one of the community leaders who came in and was able to quiet the crowd, and the word used there means to bring under firm control or to restrain. One of the ways we express the connotation of this word is to kind of do this with your thumb, right? I mean, when you, when you squelch something like that, that's, that's the connotation of that word. That's not the word used here. The word that's used here is the Greek word hesukia. It's used in both verses 11 and 12. It's also used in, in chapter 2, verse 2, of which we... Noted then when Colin was speaking, it says, pray for kings and who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This word translated quiet means calm or well-ordered. It's not the hidden secret kind of connotation. It's not the squelching or the refraining kind of connotation. It means calm and well-ordered. Let a woman learn in a well-ordered way, in a calm way, with all submissiveness, we might say. Um, so why else does remain quiet not mean silence or for women to just kind of sit on the sidelines in silence as some have uh, practiced and as by way of applying this text. Why, why is it that it doesn't mean that women cannot play as a meaningful and significant role in the kingdom work of God? Well, first of all, because there's multiple biblical examples of women active in ministry. Um, 
If you have the version notes, you have all of these scriptures spelled out for you. I won't take the time to read them all for sake of time today. But in Luke chapter 2, verses 36 through 38, we read of Anna, the prophetess who was present and active at the dedication of Jesus in the temple courts. In Acts chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, in the context of that upper room waiting after Jesus rose from the dead, the disciples were finding themselves waiting for what was next. And we read the fact that there was about 120 people all together, including men and women, waiting for what was next. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, uh, women were found praying and prophesying in public settings. It says there specifically in 1 Corinthians eleven five, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, and the whole head covering thing is another thing we won't get into today. But there's women prophesying here, praying. And Paul is referencing there a, a public uh, setting. Acts chapter 18, verse 26, Romans chapter 16, verses 3 through 5, we see this husband and wife duo of Aquila and Priscilla, or Prisca, They are introduced to us in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 3, when Paul, it says, found a Jew named Aquila, and he and his wife, Priscilla, arrived in Corinth from Italy because Emperor Claudius had kicked out all the Christians out of Rome. And uh, they uh, had the same trade. They were tent makers, and Paul was a tent maker. So it says there that he, he worked for them, and he even seems lived with them during that time. And in that relationship, there's something very meaningful that develops, and Paul begins to realize, man, these, these two, Aquila and Priscilla, are both, they love the Lord and they follow him. And so in verse 26 of Acts 8, chapter 18, when Apollos, who was an effective teacher in the early church, when he was in Ephesus doing some teaching, all he knew at that point was the baptism of John the Baptist, right? And I know I'm giving you a lot of details, hang with me, right? So, but, he, but he needed to know, like, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? And, and so who was it that taught him? It was... Priscilla and Aquila, the scripture says. They together um, instruct Apollos on the way. And in Romans 16, Paul says, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. So it seems like they hosted a house church in the early days. We see, furthermore, Romans chapter 16 as well, the first two verses. Uh, Phoebe, who was uh, described as a servant of the church at Sincrea, um, and very active in ministry there. In Luke chapter 8, 1 through 3, we see the ministry of Jesus supported by women of means. Um, it says specifically there in Luke 8, soon afterward, he, Jesus, went, through, uh, went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, and, and Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So we see women actively supporting the ministry of Jesus through their resources. And then we see 
several Old Testament examples of influential women, Deborah, Esther, Ruth, to name a few. So, so why is it that, you know, as we, as we look at the breadth of Scripture and we come to a text like 1 Timothy chapter 2, um, why is it that we can reasonably conclude what Paul is talking about here is just that women have no, don't have any place in the work of God, that women should just sit by silently and not, right? Because the, the Scriptures are filled with examples of women actively engaged in the ministry. Furthermore, we know, as we said earlier, every believer is given at least one spiritual gift to do what? To build up the body of Christ, men and women. And in that, the gift of teaching, as it's described, is not limited to men. We see no restriction of any gift, really, specifically to men or to women. Uh, Nor is there, listen, nor is there any particular gift that is prescribed for every single believer. Um, some of you know the context I'm talking about with that. For those who would say there's a sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit by speaking in tongues. There is no one gift of the Spirit of God that is spoken of designed for every single believer. So there is not a restriction of any gift for male or female, nor is there one gift for every believer specifically. A third reason, finally here, of, of why we know Paul is not saying women have no place, is Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. There is a clear call for older women to teach the younger women. Um, and so, and, and he, he gives this, this call here for women to uh, learn silently or quietly in submissiveness. Um, and in, we've talked about submission before at length. Um, and I just simply don't have the time to go back into it today. But if you, if you want to hear more of that, you can go to the, the Grounded uh, series that we did last fall. You can find that on the website or the Rooted series we actually did a few years back um, and, and delve into that. But, but what we know about submission is this, is that when, when um, submission is spoken of in regards to women in the, in the scriptures, uh, we have the fact all throughout the scriptures we are all called to submission. We are all called to submit to the ruling authorities above us, right, in, in life. We, we are all called to submit ourselves. If, if you read in Ephesians 5, right before Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands, it says right there that we are to submit ourselves one to another out of reverence for Christ, right? And that's everybody, right? That's, that's, that's that heart among the body of Christ that says, I, I respect you as my brother, as my sister. I respect you as one created in the image of God. I, re, I respect you as, as one following Jesus with me. And we're going to submit to one another and I, as we submit to Christ. Um, so uh, don't let that um, be something that, that stirs uh, anger within you or whatever. Um, God's simply saying there's, there's purpose and reasoning behind all of this. And, and Paul defines what he means by learn quietly a bit further as he goes. He, he says there's two things not permitted. So what can we conclude? Well, here's two things that Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. These two things for me seem to be exclusive, uh, separated by the word or, but yet they are certainly related. Paul says, I don't permit a woman to teach men. Now, in one regard, that seems pretty clear. Um, but as we think about the application of that, what is Paul getting at? Right? There's, 
all kinds of different scenarios we could ask the question of, right? Uh, preaching, for sure. Um, what about, should a woman teach a Bible study involving men? Um, what about a woman leading a community group? Um, and, and by the way, where do we, you know, where's that line of, well, if we refer to her as a facilitator versus a leader, right? Like, you know, like all of those kind of things. And then that's what I'm saying. Like as we, as we understand what the word is saying, then the application becomes the part where we need dependence on the spirit of God and, and discernment in our minds and hearts to say our desire is to submit ourselves to what God has for us, whatever that is according to the word. And then, and then as we flesh that out, it's like, all right, let's be discerning and wise about what that looks like among us. Um, some have concluded like there's just no place in any regard uh, for a woman to teach men. I mean, if for example, what about, you know, in our children's ministry, we, we at, at times uh, will have a CPR class offered so that our children's workers are, are trained and ready to respond to emergencies. And is it okay if a woman teaches that class to a group of men and women? Um, some have concluded no. Uh, so the application of these things, right? That would not be our stance here, by the way. Um, but just so you know, like that, that's where the, the challenge of, of these things, um, you know, leading a devotional for a ministry team or counseling, right? Um, is there a time when a woman should, in our biblical soul care ministry, should be counseling a man? Um, the, the application of what we see here is important. And there's the whole gamut of interpretation, right, and how some apply it. Some would say that in every, in every situation it's okay because Paul was addressing the cultural context of Ephesus, not, not giving universal principles to the church. Others would say women teaching is okay as long as the woman is doing so in submission to the male authority of the church, right, the elders or pastors. Others would say never on any occasion for any reason should a woman teach a man. Um, as I conclude in my study of this, I think it pertains to the sound doctrine within the context of the local church and the universal church. In other words, the whole context here of Paul addressing Timothy, as we note from earlier in chapter 1, of a guard sound doctrine. Um, there are certain persons who have made their way in among you, and they're teaching false doctrine. And so the, the whole tone of the letter is in regards to guarding that doctrine and guarding what has been entrusted to us by Christ. And, and so certainly it seems like that's the application point of whether that's preaching or whether it's uh, a teaching uh, in, a, in a, you know, a biblical context, um, that that position is reserved to men, counseling would be another. Yeah, um, we've we've set a standard that that uh, our, the women of our soul care team don't counsel men, and vice versa. We're very careful of even men counseling women um, in that regard for other reasons. But uh, so the application points of of these teachings is what um, needs discernment. Paul's heart is for guarding sound doctrine. Um, so he says, I don't permit a woman to teach a man, nor do I permit a woman to have authority over men. And uh, we're going to, uh, because I knew we'd be short on time with this, we're going to let this flow kind of into next week's context in chapter 3 as well, because he uh, goes further into um, that understanding. Um, and so we'll have more on this regarding 
uh, elders and so forth next week. Um, but he, he, Paul seems clear. These, these are the two arenas of life together as a local church where men ought to have the responsibility. And what's his reasoning? I think this is vital for us. So if I've lost you in the midst of that, come back with me. You ready? What's Paul's reasoning for his practice? Um, in verse 13, he says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. So Paul appeals to the order of creation. Uh, now, that order of creation, I believe, has always been challenged since sin entered the world. Right? That's part of our heart. That's, why, that's how Satan tempted uh, Eve in the garden. You, oh, God said you can't. Oh, you know what, God? Because you'll be like God. Right? And so instead of, as humanity uh, are submitting ourselves to God, the, the desire that was played upon was, was becoming like God, right? Usurping his authority in life. So Paul appeals to that order of creation, which has always been challenged. It's the universal heart problem because of sin. And so as we think about Genesis 1 and 2, if it's been a while since you've read it, I encourage you to, to go and read it this afternoon. But God created things very specifically and in a specific way, I think, to teach us. It wasn't just by random order or random design. It wasn't just by happen chance that God did things the way that he did. I think God was teaching us as he created that order. And the scripture tells us he created Adam first. And before Eve came along, as it seems in the text, God gave to Adam that call of not eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So God entrusted to Adam that, that clear command that he had to not eat of that fruit. God called upon Adam as the one whom he created first to be the guardian of that truth. And then Adam, God gives Adam the opportunity to name the animals and creating this longing in him that there's, man, there's male and female, but there's none like me. And so this longing in Adam continues to grow. And God says, it's not good the man is alone. And, and that's not a mistake of God or a correction that he, no, God created it in a certain order. And God says, I'll create for you that helper. And just as God is our helper, the scripture describes, right, uh, this beautiful union of, of a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, God putting on display what that oneness uh, is to be like as we are equally created in the image of God, fulfilling um, our call of God together. Um, and so then God grants to Adam, uh, God creates woman out of the sight of man, not out of the dust of the ground, and then God even gives to Adam the opportunity of naming woman meaning out of man. And so the fact that Paul goes back to creation in that order, for me, eliminates the idea that what Paul is teaching here um, in 1 Timothy, the fact that uh, he goes back to that creation order, that it, this is beyond the cultural teaching of the time, uh, specific to Ephesus. He's referring to a timeless truth of God's created order. God created the way he did with clear purpose and meaning. And so just as that is to be reflected in a marriage relationship, um, lovingly, graciously, respectfully, all of that, that same attitude is to be reflected in the local church, the body of Christ, the people of God. Um, and so uh, we see that in elsewhere in, in the scriptures as well, that kind of reference to the created order that again, we just don't have time to go to today, but 
Um, so Paul refers to that creation order, and then secondly, and, and we'll uh, get back to this next week, in verse 14, he goes on to say, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So not only does Paul appeal to the creation order, but he appeals to the deception of Eve. Um, was Adam deceived? Well, if we look at the context of Genesis 3, verses 6 and 7 in particular, this is what we read. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So Satan flipped the created order of God. Uh, as I think is, continues to be our challenge today. Uh, he flipped it on its head, approached the woman. We know Eve was deceived. We know she ate the fruit. We know she gave some to Adam. We know he ate it as well. So uh, what we determine is, well, if Adam wasn't deceived, he still disobeyed, right? Um, and that is clear. And uh, he gave in to that temptation as well. Um, and the consequences of sin that God directly gives out in Genesis chapter 3, we know, um, again, this is where we'll circle back around a bit next week because it applies to verse 15, but um, the specific consequences God speaks of in Genesis 3, I think we can directly correlate uh, with the context here and what Paul is getting at. Um, and so where do we land on this? Um, one, we need God's spirit of wisdom, Amen. Uh, I think we have, uh, by using some good principles of, of biblical interpretation, we have uh, a foundation of what God is teaching to us here, um, what God is making clear based upon not only uh, the words of Paul here, but based upon God's order and design of creation, of how we are to uh, function uh, as humanity, as men and women equally created and valued in the image of God equally designed and gifted by God to play a part in the body of Christ, building one another up, we simply have roles to play. And, uh, and so may the Spirit of God give us wisdom as we continue to discern well uh, how that plays out. Amen? And, um, and may we seek the Lord in that humbly and uh, respectfully. Let's, uh, we're going to finish with that today. I'm going to pray, and we're going to be dismissed. And I'm just going to pray that the Spirit of God continues to give us uh, um, ears to hear, hearts to receive what he has for us. Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us. And once again, we thank you for the teaching of your word. We thank you, uh, Lord, that you uh, have given to us exactly what you're, we need. Your word tells us that, that we have everything we need for life and godliness. And so, Lord, as we study difficult passages like this um, that challenge us, that that, that um, Lord, that reveal your design that is often different than what is our um, desires as humanity and our sinfulness. Lord, I pray that you would help us to submit ourselves to you um, and, uh, and your word. Um, Lord, we know that one day we will give an account um, for how we have handled your truth and uh, so, Lord, I pray that we as the church, not only this local church, but the church universal, um, Lord, that we would handle your word well um, with all humility and reverence toward one another and you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.